Well, good morning again, and welcome to week number two of our series called Philippians. Um, as I talked about last week, uh, a few times a year, I just like to pick a small passage of Scripture and spend a little more time in that passage of Scripture rather than speaking generally on a broader topic. And so, uh, for the next couple of weeks, we're going to be in the book of Philippians, which is an incredible book of the Bible uh, to encourage us to live lives full of joy. Uh, in fact, as we talked about last week, 16 times through this four-chapter letter that a man named Paul, who was an apostle in the early church, in this letter he wrote this, 16 times he mentions the word either joy or rejoice. And so the predominant theme of this book is joy. And as we talked about last week, uh, joy um, is not based on circumstance. And so Paul's encouragement through us, and hopefully as we'll leave this series knowing, is that we can have joy no matter what we go through. No matter what difficulties or situations or hardships or um, happy experiences that we have, we can always have joy. And so we're going to build on that a little bit today. And um, I want to begin by reviewing the last four verses of chapter one to kind of catch us up and, and, and make a transition into chapter two uh, a little more smooth. As we ended last week, we, we read these verses. Um, Philippians chapter one, verse 27, Paul writes, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come to see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved and that by God. So he's speaking to a church that he started on his second missionary journey about 10 years prior to this current time he's writing this letter. He's writing this letter from prison because he's being persecuted uh, for um, the sake of the gospel. Uh, as he's in Rome now writing this letter, he's encouraging the church in Philippi that as they are facing similar things as he is being persecuted, um, that they are to conduct themselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And then he makes this statement that we kind of ended on last week where he says, For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for him. Now, we don't always see that as a promise. Uh, we love the fact that we have the freedom to believe on Christ, but to suffer for him has also been granted to us. So when we face different trials and hardships, we should consider it an honor that we get to carry the name of Christ and receive joy through it. And then he ends by saying, since you were going through the same struggle you saw I had and now hear that I still have. So from prison, in a Roman prison, which was much like a dungeon uh, beneath the earth, uh, a dark place, typically you would be chained to a Roman guard from kind of the worst of worst experiences as you could have. Paul is writing to this church and telling them uh, that they can have joy. Uh, that they can live lives no matter what, full of the joy that comes only from Christ. And we talked about the difference between happiness and joy and how happiness is based on external things and circumstances, but joy is internal and it's based on Christ. And ultimately, we talked about how happiness um, was by chance, but joy was by choice. And so we really dove in last week into the fact that we can choose to have joy no matter what difficult situations that we're facing. Now today we're going to build on that a little bit and talk about the responsibility that we have to one another 
to encourage the joy in that process. So let's jump into chapter number two and continue reading. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion... So if, if what Christ has done in you and what he's doing through you is an encouragement to you, if it's, if it's a source of your joy, then he says this, then make my joy complete by being like-minded and having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. And so he's talking to this church in Philippi, he's talking to these Philippians about the importance of being united together, especially in the midst of hardship and trials But the interesting thing that I find that he says here is that by being united and by standing together as one church, that they would actually make Paul's joy complete. And so I got to thinking this week about how we can choose to have joy and how we can have an internal joy that's based on Christ, but the role that we play in one another's lives as a church is to complete that joy. So there are people who are of the mindset that you don't need the church, that it doesn't matter if you go to church, that it's kind of an optional thing, that you have a relationship with Christ and that's, that's separate from the church and you can be a Christian and not go to church and all that's arguable and it's true. You don't have to come to church to be a Christian. I would never you know, make a statement like that. But the truth is, is that if you aren't connected with a group of people who have your best interests at mind, then your joy will likely never be complete. In other words, you won't experience the type of joy that you could if you were connected with a unified body that had your best heart and interest at mind. Let me, let me kind of give you an analogy from my family to help you understand how this joy can be made complete. Um, up until the time I was 27 years old, I was, I was single. I was on my own. No one would have me. And um, I feel like I had joy in life. I feel like, you know, I I was a happy person. But if I'm being honest with you, when I met my wife and I fell in love and I proposed to her and she said yes, and six months later we got married, there was a joy that I experienced that I had not experienced before. Okay, I felt like I was a joyful person, you know. I understood in Christ who I was. I understood the importance you know, of the church in my life, but, but there was just, there was a disconnect that I had not experienced. It was a joy that once I experienced marriage, there was a joy that was complete in my life, or more complete, I should, I should say. And then a few years later, we had our first child. We had a son named Landon, and uh, he was born in 2009, and uh, I thought that being married to my wife was the most joy I would ever experience in life. I mean, I could not imagine at the time more joy than the relationship that I had with my life, but with my wife. But when I saw our son be born, there was just something inside of me that just, there was just more joy than I had ever experienced before. And it wasn't because I did anything right. It wasn't because, you know, I had uh, some kind of breakthrough. It was just, there was something that was added to my life that I could not achieve on my own. And it came through the birth of our son. And man, the joy that I experienced was just out of this world. And I thought, I thought, there is no way that I could ever have more joy than this. I mean, the birth of my firstborn son, I'm married to the woman of my dreams. You know, God has been so good to me. And, and I had more joy 
after my son was born than I had before my son was born. That doesn't mean that my life before my son was born was bad or I didn't enjoy it. It just meant that I somehow attained another level of joy that I could never have dreamed of. And then as if that wasn't enough, um, a couple of years later, three years later, we had another son. Cohen was born. And, you know, just the same thing happened. I just, I thought in my heart I could not contain any more joy than my wife and my son Landon gave me. But when Cohen was born, um, he, he was kind of a special birth because we didn't know if he was going to be a boy or a girl. We waited. And so when he came out and I saw it was another boy, I mean, this something in my heart just, I mean, it was just overwhelming the amount of joy that I experienced. And so I felt like my family, in the view of my family, I could not experience any more joy than was given through that. Do you, do you see how like me going from feeling like I had joy to becoming married made me experience more joy to having a first son made me have more joy to having another son made me have more joy. And it, and it wasn't because I didn't have joy before. It was just that my joy was being made complete. If you've, if you've had similar experiences then you know this. And so, you know, I'll be honest with you. My family is absolutely incredible. I feel like I am blessed beyond measure and have more joy than I could ever have. Now, there are challenges that go with having a family. You understand that. But the joy that's there is just unimaginable. And I thought, I thought that I could never experience more joy than after being married and having two sons. But truth be told... Several weeks ago, my wife came to me and said, we're going to be having another child. Seriously, this is like my announcement to you. We're going to be having another child. And there's just a joy in my heart, just an anticipation in my heart that longs for next May when we give birth, when my wife gives birth to a third child, and I'll be honest with you, it's overwhelming at this point, not from the joy standpoint, but from the like, wow, we're going to be outnumbered by kids now. This is, this is not going to be fair. Like They're going to gang up on us. But we'll figure that out because I can guarantee in my heart, based on past experiences, that as soon as we see our third child, there's going to be more joy than we could ever, ever imagine. And the same is true for you when it comes to the church. That Paul is speaking to us here and he's encouraging us to understand that we can make one another's joy complete. Not meaning that we don't have joy before, but just know that there is something that you have to offer that is substantial to other people that you're in fellowship with. That there is a joy that can be made complete based on your interaction with one another through the local church. See, Paul had planted this church on a second missionary journey nearly 10 years before. And he was now corresponding with the church that he had planted. And he had heard through uh, a messenger that they sent to him in prison named Epaphroditus that they were going through some difficulties. And he was writing to them to encourage them to have joy through the midst of their trials. But in his encouragements to them, he is saying, like, I need you to help make my joy complete. And here's, here's a true statement that we all should make in the church world. I need you to make my joy complete. And you need you to make your joy complete. And we need one another to make our joy complete. So what does that look like and how does that happen and how do we complete one another's joy knowing that 
one of the roles of the church is to build one another up, to encourage one another, to strengthen one another, and to make one another's joy complete. I want you to have joy beyond your wildest imagination, uh, so much so that when you go through situations and circumstances that the world doesn't understand how you have joy, you'll be able to say, I have joy in Christ and my church stands with me and there's a joy that, that doesn't even make sense that I'm experiencing. And so that's what we're going to talk about today is how we can complete one another's joy. Verse number three. Do nothing out of self, selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Let me read those two verses again. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. In this world, in this church, there are two types of people when it comes to joy interaction, if you will. There are joy builders and there are joy killers. You've ever heard of someone that's called a killjoy? It's someone who has this insane knack for finding the negative in any situation. Hopefully you don't know people like that, but chances are there are people in your life or people that you know that it doesn't matter how good a situation can be. They're going to point out, well, you know that, you know, you got the raise and now you're going to have to pay more taxes. You know, you know that, you know, you're having three kids now, but man, it's just going to be miserable in certain situations. There are certain people who have this, this drive within them that I don't completely understand, but it's a drive to find the negative in certain situations. And what they do is they suck the joy out of people. Now, now what we're going to talk about over the next couple of weeks are a couple of those joy killers. Today we're going to talk about one joy killer. If we're going to complete one another's joy, then we've got to steer clear of joy killing. Okay? Don't kill my joy. I'm going to do my best not to kill your joy. Don't kill the joy of the person next to you because if you kill people's joy, then you're counteracting against the purpose of the church for believers together to complete their joy. So, the first joy killer that we're looking at here is a selfish ambition, a vain conceit. It's, it's a motivation of the heart that longs to get something from without offering something for. Okay, it's a, it's a mindset, it's an approach to life that uh, oftentimes we see in the world but makes its way into the church that we interact with one another in such a way to get something from people. Have you ever met someone like that? They all, you always just feel like they want something from you. They don't ever offer anything for you, but they want something from you. And some people, let's just be honest, they come to church because they want to get something from people. Now, as your pastor, if you're here and you just want to get something, I hope, I hope that you get what you're looking for. And I pray that God gives you blessings upon blessings and you leave encouraged week after week. But if you never transition to wanting to give something to other people, then though your joy may be building up, you're failing to offer your role in the church to help build someone else's joy. And so the first joy killer here is, 
is having a motivation of the heart that's selfishly driven. And in the church world, these are Paul's words, they're not mine. Okay, I'm just reading the Bible here. Think about your role in the church. Think about your experience with the church, history, present, future. And listen again to Paul's words now, knowing that you could kill someone's joy if this is a part of your life. He says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Nothing. But in humility, consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also the interests of others. And so the question for us is, whose interests am I looking for? What am I doing to humble myself and look out for the interests of others above my own? And so we want to make sure that we are not joy killers. And it starts with an attitude. And so Paul's going to teach us here the attitude that we have to have if we're going to steer clear of this joy killer. And listen to what he goes on to say, starting in verse number five. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Not to like put any kind of burden on your shoulders or stuff, anything, but, but you've got a tall order here. Like you have a huge responsibility in the life of your church. If you call this your church, if you have another church and you're visiting today at that church, wherever the church is that you belong to, that you call family, that you are connected with, Paul is saying that you should have the attitude that's the same as that of Christ Jesus. And then he's going to go on to explain it. So get ready. Same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, verse 6, who being in the very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. That Jesus Christ was God incarnate. That God the Father sent Jesus, God the Son, to earth. Now, He could have walked the earth as the king that he was. He could have walked the earth as the son of God that he was with an attitude saying, like, you know, I have power over all things. Like, I will destroy you if you don't bow down to me right now. Like, he could have done that. But he didn't have that approach. Even the way that he was brought into this world highlighted the very humility that he brought to this world. That he was born at a time where there was not even room for him in any inns or anyone's home. He was born actually in a stable, in a barn, if you will, among animals. The king of all kings would humble himself to come. Now, he didn't come to be served, but he came to serve. And he had an attitude that caused him to be obedient to the point of death because he was so humbled that he recognized that the interests that he should pursue were not his own. So he pursued the interest of the whole world, of you and me, and became obedient to the point of death. Now, this is a, this is a tall order. This is, this is a difficult attitude to have. When you talk about attitudes, attitudes can fluctuate based on your experiences, just like happiness. I mean, if you're going through good times, you can have a great attitude, but it's easy, it's so easy to to get a bad attitude when things start going wrong or you get tired or you get frustrated or, or things don't go the way you expected them to or desired them to and you can have an attitude that causes you 
to begin to turn inward and look out for your own interests. You know, I'm fighting for number one. I'm fighting for myself. You know, I'm going to make sure I'm taken care of. And then, you know, if there's anything left over, you know, you can have the rest. But that's just the absolute opposite of what Christ came and the attitude that he had and the attitude that Paul teaches us to have. And this is one reason that we spend a lot of time talking about what we call team synergy. This is one reason that we encourage people um, to move from a position um, of attending a church to actually um, serving in the church because we believe wholeheartedly that if, that if you don't make that transition, it's so easy to allow yourself to become a consumer only. That, that you're always looking out for your own interests, that you're trying to get something from the church. And listen, the church has a lot to offer. I mean, the church is the bride of Christ. There's so much encouragement that comes from the church. You can be strengthening the church. There's times that you need the church and you don't feel like you have a lot to offer. And in fact, there's a lot of times that you don't feel like you have anything to offer because we're just imperfect people and we go through life and we don't feel worthy to serve in the church. I'll be the first to raise my hand to that one. But if we're not careful, if we don't, take on the attitude of Christ, which was an attitude of humility that comes to serve others, then we'll find ourselves in this consumer mindset. Now, it's okay to consume things, but if you don't ever contribute things and you only consume things, then, then you can find yourself in a position of looking out for your own interests. And that's why we encourage people, do something, find something to do. You don't have to like come at six in the morning and set up um, like some people do, but just do something and take a step towards allowing yourself to offer something that's of the interest of others. It's not always for them as much as it is for you. And it's not always for you as much as it is for them. It's a mutual responsibility by which we take commitment in the church seriously enough to look out for the interests of others. And in the process of doing that, we guard ourselves from a consumer mindset that allows us to become selfish and do things out of vain conceit. Now, if that ever happens, then we're taking joy from people. We're not completing people's joy. That There are people who could experience a greater level of joy because of what we offer that we could be robbing them from. And listen, I don't want to rob you of any joy. And if I'm being like, if I were to be inwardly focused here, I don't want you to rob me of any of my joy either. And so if we have this mindset that says, what can I look out for your interests and how can I do that? How can I serve? How can I humble myself and become like the attitude that Christ had? Then I take a step from removing this joy killer from my life and allowing myself to offer for others. Verse number nine, Jesus had an attitude that said, I'm going to humble myself and become obedient even to death. I'm only here to serve others. Because of that, listen to this, verse number nine, Therefore, because he had that attitude, therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Two approaches Christ could have taken here. He could have stood up and said, I am the Christ, I am the living God, bow down and worship me now, he could have demanded that of people, and some people would have. But he didn't have that attitude. He had the attitude of humility, 
one that served others. He was obedient even to the point of death. And therefore, because of that, God did something in his life that he could not have achieved on his own. And God exalted him because he humbled himself. And when God exalted him, he gave him a name that was above every name. That There's coming a day that all of us, whether you claim to be a follower of Christ or not, everyone in the world at some point on a day of judgment, before they die, hopefully, that's our prayer, they will say that Jesus Christ is Lord. They will bow a knee to the King of kings and Lord of lords because God has exalted him. And it all happened because he had an attitude of humility. When we look to our own interests, we'll get some. But when we humble ourselves and we serve others, God does for us what we can't do for ourselves. And it's a joy that you can't really explain. It's knowing that you had a part in someone's story. It's knowing that you contributed something to someone's story. It's knowing that someone received something because you offered something. And God's able to take our little and make much of it. And because of that, we complete one another's joy. So how do we have that attitude? How do we avoid those joy killers? Let's, let's keep reading. Verse number 12. Therefore... My dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. As you've always obeyed in my presence, but now that I'm in prison, much more in my absence, now that you're doing what you're supposed to do, even when I'm not watching you, Continue to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, with this humility, with this reverence for Christ. It's an instruction here uh, to commit yourselves to the process of maturity in Christ. It's an instruction from Paul, still for us today, that we are to continue growing in Christ, continue maturing in Him, continue to work out our salvation. And one of the first things that we can do to keep from allowing this self-interest to compete in our hearts is we can just continue to commit all the more to Christ and continue to be uncontent, to be dissatisfied with where we are and long to be closer and more committed to Christ. And as we do that and make that transition, and it's kind of like we're saying, you know, I'm all in. I'm fully committed. I'm not on the peripheral just looking in. Like, I want to be a part of what God's doing in this church. Then God takes us and he kind of guards our heart from that self-interest that creeps in. And then here's, here's some instructions more that he encourages how to have the attitude of Christ. Verse 14. Do everything without complaining or arguing. Don't you wish your kids would just own this verse? Do everything without complaining or arguing. So that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe as you hold out the word of life in order that I may boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor for nothing But even if I'm being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you 
So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. Paul is saying here that in the church, that you do what God's called you to do without arguing, without complaining. And in so doing, you're refreshing to others. And you're able to make people's joy complete. There is nothing more frustrating than someone who complains and someone who argues over things that have to be done. If you're a parent, you know this all too well, that you give simple instructions for things that need to be done by your kids. And when there's arguing and when there's complaining, there is no joy. In those moments, there is frustration and there is anger and there's division. And you find yourselves competing with one another because someone doesn't want to do what they're called to do and someone else believes they should do what they're supposed to do. And then there's arguing and then there's complaining and there's just no joy. And this is a picture of a church where people, not only do they argue and complain, but it's like their attitude is that of, I want to do less than I have to but I want to have experiences that are a result of you doing more than you need to do. And it's frustrating. If you've ever been part of a, a team, if you've ever had responsibilities in a family and you felt like you were required to do more than someone else, that they didn't pull their weight, that they didn't you know, do their part and you were having to overcompensate for them, then you're not having their interests in mind. If you've got a teammate that is always looking out for themselves and they're, they're self-driven and they're longing to build themselves up and they have no interest in teammates, then those teammates begin to look at them with disdain. There's no unity. And when there's division because people argue and complain, that's a church where there's no joy. I know that churches are supposed to be the most joyful places on the planet, but the truth is, for a lot of churches, for a lot of churches, there's not a lot of joy in the churches because there's not a lot of unity in the churches and because people feel like they're competing with one another for interests. And if we would ever be able to take the stance of fully humbling ourselves... And simply looking out for the interests of others above ourselves. If everyone did that, the church would be incredible. People would love one another. People would serve one another. People would be there for one another. And there would be incredible joy in that church. So Paul says, do nothing. Do not, do not complain. Do not argue when it comes to the role that you play in the church. And if you'll do that and you'll be obedient to what you're supposed to do, then you will make the race that we're running together and make the mission that we're trying to accomplish full of joy. And it will feel like we didn't labor in vain. It will feel like we're accomplishing what God's called us to accomplish. Verse number, verse number 19. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. Now listen to what Paul says about Timothy. Now Timothy was 
a young pastor, he would go on to pastor the church in the city of Ephesus, the church of Ephesians, and he would go on to write a couple of letters that are now recorded in the New Testament. And he was like a son to Paul. He traveled with Paul. He, he was kind of mentored by Paul. He was, he was Paul's apprentice, if you will. And so Paul is now in prison, and he says, I long to send Timothy to you. And then he says this about him. There's no one else like him who takes a genuine interest in your welfare. Who takes a genuine interest in your welfare. For everyone looks out for his own interests, not those of Jesus Christ, But you know that Timothy has proved himself because he, as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. And I hope, therefore, to send him as soon as I see how things go with me. And I am confident in the Lord that I myself will come soon. You want to talk about an incredible compliment? Be the one person that Paul, one of the most incredible leaders in all of the New Testament, in all of the church history, Be the one person that he says has a genuine interest in others. Everyone else looks out for his own interests, but but not Timothy. I can send Timothy to you because I know that he has a genuine interest in your welfare. That he genuinely longs to see you do well. that, That he wants you to be well. I would hope that I could fall into that category but if I'm being honest like most of us there are times where I argue about things I complain about things I get frustrated with things I find myself longing for things for myself and I can't be fully confident that Paul would say of me what he says of Timothy but I want that and it's an ambition for my life it's something that I strive towards because I don't want to kill joy for people. And one of the ways that I can do that is by having a genuine interest in people. I want to hurt when you hurt. I want to rejoice when you rejoice. I want to celebrate with you in the good times. I want to weep with you in the bad times. But the only way that happens is based on an attitude. And it's a mindset that says, above all else, I want to have a genuine interest in your life. Can you imagine a church full of people who have genuine interest in one another's lives, who honestly, genuinely care for one another as true family and love? Can you imagine the joy that would take place in that church? Verse 25, but I think it is necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow co-worker, and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs. For he longs for all of you and is distressed because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill and almost died, but God had mercy on him, and not only him, but also on me, to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I am all the more eager to send him, so that when you see him again, you may be glad, and I may have less anxiety." Welcome him in the Lord with great joy and honor men like him because he almost died for the work of Christ, risking his life to make up for the help you could not give me. 
So apparently when word got back to the church in Philippians that Paul was imprisoned in Rome, they sent a messenger, Epaphroditus, to Paul to check on him, to tend to his needs, to, to try to help him in the midst. And apparently in the process, he became ill and almost died. And somehow the church got word about it and there was anxiety. There were people that were worried and they didn't know what had happened. And so Epaphroditus longed to go back to the church that he belonged to. And he longed to let them know that he was okay and to give them a report on Paul. And Paul longed for him to go back too because he wanted them not to worry as well. And the instruction that he gives to the church through this letter is that you are to welcome and honor men like Epaphroditus. Who when you couldn't meet needs, when you couldn't be in Rome, you were able to send him to do that for you. That he was someone that went above and beyond to serve the church. He was one who, who, when nothing else could be done, he was the one willing to do the hard stuff. I wish that I could just take the time and just read off a list of the people in this church who go above and beyond to make it possible for us to even meet every week. I won't do it because I would forget someone and then somebody would get their feelings hurt and that wouldn't be the point of it. But here's the instruction that we have, is that we are to honor one another as we serve together. That we don't take service for one another for granted, that we don't uh, express an ungrateful, you know, just expectation for people to do things in the church, but we find people who are doing things in the church that are worthy to be celebrated, and we should celebrate. We should celebrate those things. One of my favorite events of the year is coming up in a couple of weeks. We have what we call Team Synergy Soiree. And we kind, of, we kind of have a night where we invite all of our volunteers to come together and, and we just celebrate them. We just honor them. It's just a fun night. We kind of get a little dressed up because we never get dressed up when we come to church. We leave the kids at home. There's no childcare. It's just the people who are serving together. And we just have a fun night to honor one another. And it's an opportunity for us to say, you may not feel as appreciated as you should, and we may not do the best job of expressing our gratitude for what you do every week, but we want you to know that what you do is important. And what you offer as service to God builds joy in the whole church. And I long for us to be a church that completes one another's joy. In the heart of it, it starts with making sure we're not joy-killing by having selfish ambitions in the church. And one of the best ways that we can guard against that is by serving as Christ did in the church. And so I want to kind of end our time together in prayer. But before I do, I just want to, I just want to challenge you. What, what are you doing to complete joy in others? Is there any selfish ambition or vain conceit in your heart when it comes to church? Do you ever look out for your own interest above others? Do you ever have a genuine welfare for others? Do you argue or complain about things that have to be done? Do you have an attitude like that of Christ Jesus who deserved all the glory but acted as if he had none? And served others. 
Is there someone's joy in your life that may not be complete because you're joy killing? And if so, we're not going to raise hands, we're not going to point out anybody, and we're not going to reprimand you or scold you or anything crazy. I just want to encourage you to take a step, a step towards joy building rather than joy killing. If you don't know where to start to make that happen, then just look on the back of your connection card and there's some volunteer opportunities and you can just start there as a first step. And we would love to help you be part of a church that we're longing to build together where people have joy that's unexplainable because they're a part of it. We don't want people to love our church because of the music. We don't want people to love our church because of any other reason than there is a genuine love for one another that it feels like family, and that we are serving together for a common purpose and a common mission. And what we say is that's to make Christ known in the lives of people far from God. And if we can ever have that unity and we can ever stand together as one person, as Paul said as he opened this chapter, then we'll make joy complete among one another. Take a step to be a joy builder, not a joy killer. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for who you are, and thank you for the joy that you make complete in us through others. I thank you, Lord, that because of this church, I have joy that I would not experience outside of it. I thank you, Father, that there's a joy that I, that I enjoy because I'm a part of this church that if I were on my own, I just wouldn't experience. And my prayer is that starting with me, is that we wouldn't joy kill. There would be no selfish motivations, that we wouldn't argue and complain, that we would have a unity around a common purpose and mission, that you would use us collectively to, in humility, serve one another, have a genuine interest in others, that we may complete one another's joy. So that in whatever circumstances, so that no matter what, we can stand in the joy of Christ. Help us be the church that encourages one another to stand in that joy no matter what, because we're joy builders, not joy killers. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.